new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. Thank you everyone for tuning in again for another episode. We appreciate your support and the beautiful feedback that you're giving us on the show. And so I'm your host today, Dr. Joshua Black, and our co-host, Sean Ram, could not be here today, uh, but I'm going to be doing this one solo, but I'm excited to do this one. We're going to have a repeat guest on that we had on episode 73, way back in June 2018. But he's come back on. He's got some new news for us. So we have Dr. Christopher Kerr, who is the CEO and Chief Medical Officer at Buffalo Hospice. He was born and raised in Toronto, and he earned his MD as well as his PhD in neurobiology and completed his residency in internal medicine at the University of Rochester. His research has received international attention and has been featured in the New York Times, Atlantic Monthly, and the BBC. His new book called Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope and Meaning at Life's End is coming out February 11th, 2020. So this is exciting. I'm happy that he's on the show to talk about this new book. I'm thrilled to start reading this thing. So Dr. Kerr, welcome on the podcast again. Oh, nice nice to be speaking to you again. So last time we chatted, you mentioned the book that you're starting to write, and it's been about a year and a half. So what was that process like for you to write a book? I'm guessing, is this your first one? Yes, yes. Is it different than writing a manuscript? Because I know you've written a lot of those. Yeah, it's actually more enjoyable. Um, (laughs) The stories are richer. You can get into backstories, really give voice to the patient and the families. Um, it, it, it was it was probably one of the most enjoyable experiences I've had, like ever. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was really that wow. remarkable. It was um, it was um, you know the 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 the, the research I've always felt uh, is difficult to translate with such a human experience, and if you can make it richer by telling the backstories, it um it brings it to life in a very different way. And I think you see that through your TED talk that you did that has, I think, over 2 million views and how that's different yeah. from doing the research because writing an academic paper, like a manuscript, is really boring and it reads mm. to be boring. That's like the whole point of it. Um, mm. But what you're, but that doesn't tra- translate well to the general public. But the TED talk really did. And I'm guessing the book will also. Yeah, I hope so. And But but you're right. I, I actually don't usually, won't give talks unless I can include patient family videos because that's even even more powerful much better in their words it's hard to capture otherwise and i think there's um a bias to assume the folks that we're talking about are frail and confused or feeble-minded so to see and hear them becomes very important yeah i saw a couple of videos in some of the the press that has come out on you and it is it's you get a different impact when you hear people telling their story versus you just writing about their story Yes, very much so. Yeah, and actually, that's one smart thing we did. Um, when we started doing this research many years ago, it was originally I did it in hopes of reaching a medical audience and knew there would be issues of believability and um, a lot can be lost in translation. So we started filming people very on uh, in this effort, and it turns out to have been really helpful. And actually, the, a lot of that footage then has become the basis of a documentary and uh, of a Netflix production. All right. So before we talk about <laughs> the uh, the documentary, I'm really curious. So when it comes to the book, what are some of the chapters that you have put in there? 
Well, it, it really, it starts off, one of the requests made of me is that they, you need to become familiarized with the writer. So it kind of starts a little bit with my backstory coming um, from more traditional acute side of medicine um, and really not having any disposition towards this sort of thing. Um, and my own exposure, education uh, along those lines. And then it goes to the frustration of trying to teach and educate around this area and then the need for really evidence-based research. Mm. And then what the bulk of the book does, it explains the outcomes of the, the, all our research studies, but it does so by letting patients tell, tell their stories. So it's done through case studies, essentially, um, that uh, I hope are uh, are demonstrating the results of our of our findings there's special uh chapters for example some that are dedicated to distressing experiences some um people who have uh who are who are who are very cognitively um dementia cp that sort of thing um children um and then there's a section on the bereaved my ears just perked up <laughs> yeah <bereaved>. <laughs> Well, that, that's actually been the last series of studies we've done. We've got one more to publish, but I think we have over 700 surveys from various family members. We published the one article that actually was just cited as an influential paper last week. So it's, it's finding an audience, too. That's amazing. And if I recall correctly, because we had uh, Dr. Grant on here, and she was talking about the tell me the same study of the bereaved experiences hearing about these dreams from the dying. Yes. Yes. Okay, yeah. yeah. As opposed to bereaved dreams. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we did public, we, we did publish one study on that, but, but yeah, that's right. It's, it's, it's the, the questions that we look at are what is the um, end effect of, for the bereaved if they've seen their loved ones having these experiences. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great step from where you were to this new area of, the experiences of those seeing it. And I'm really curious about cultural perspectives on these experiences, because I know even doing this podcast and talking with people along the way, um, when it comes to dreams of the deceased, so like after loss, the, um, there's a, there can be a mixed uh, feeling based on their spirituality or mm -hmm. their religion on how they interpret these experiences after they wake up. And I'm curious if that, have you seen anything like that within the people that are dying or with the, the bereaved themselves when they hear? No, about no. We, we haven't. And I think part is it's hard to sort that out. So we ask questions about belief systems, but it's, it's, you know, people will, will for example, say that they're, they're Catholic, but they, 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 they may have distanced themselves from their faith and they don't tend to frame it in those terms. Um, we, we haven't, dug deep enough or have enough cultural variance to, to actually draw any conclusions. Mm. I'm yeah. sure they're there. Um, yeah. you know, it, it's, uh, it's well known that, that, that the, uh, in other parts of the world, it's, it's well rooted in their cultural identity and beliefs. I was just speaking to somebody in Japan who who bought uh, a Japanese publisher who bought the book and, um, they said it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a, it's a well-accepted phenomenon that people have these end-of-life experiences. And in fact, um, they call it pick-up, pick-me-up phenomena. Hmm. In other words, it's the ancestors coming back to pick up the person. That's That was the translation I was given. 
Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, isn't that? <laughs> it is, yeah. So it's like you can tell it's in people's cultures, but it just hasn't been academically, academically studied. No, I mean, it's a big part of how they maintain connectivity um, between people who are lost, uh, who they've lost. Yeah, because I know just to, to talk about some culture aspects of what I've heard. So I've had some uh, Christians say that these dreams are from the devil. And some people say these dreams are, are from God. Other people that are Buddhists have said this is a negative thing after two years because it's a sign that they haven't reincarnated yet. So they provide merit and they pay to try to reincarnate the individual to basically stop these dreams from happening. And some people don't, right? Some people say they've reached nirvana. So it's very interesting of how just even in these dreams, if they happen at end of life, I could see the same kind of discomfort in some people who hold those beliefs where right. for the most time, most people, I think in general, should find comfort in them. There's a reason why they're occurring. But when, they're, when your, your belief system overrides the comfort, then I think you know, there's something there to be able to notice and, and need to talk about. Right. You know, one of the things we did with this book and with all our work that was really important is that we um, deliberately didn't try to uh, extrapolate beyond death. Mm. Um, what we really, truly wanted to do was look at the process um, within dying as kind of a mystery unto itself without necessarily viewing it as a harbinger of things to come. And we really were trying to avoid our interpretation dilute, diluting the voices of the patient. So we were just trying to literally translate the patient experience as it was expressed. So we, the book you know, lightly touches it, but does not go into paranormal religious afterlife at all. Mm. It, it certainly, it, in as much as the patient may mention it, we honor it, but, but we don't take it any deeper because a lot of the, a lot of the work that's been done on this, and you see this particularly with near-death experiences, which are very different, you view this as a keyhole to another world. Mm. And, and we're just trying to, what we're, our, our primary purpose is really to acknowledge that there's a non-physical dimensionality to dying. There's a subjective state um, and experiences, and that's what we wanted to shine the light on. I think that's beautiful. It's like you're walking that thin line that people need. Because once you side with one side, you're alienating another side. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Yeah. And to be honest with you, particularly when we started, I mean, the, there's nothing new in our observations. Um, but it's getting a whole different level of attention because we used an evidence-based approach. We published in medical journals. You know, we had physicians doing it, that sort of thing. And it mattered in that we were, we were just taking a, an objective approach to it. If we, as soon as we had started to extrapolate, into the afterlife, it would have then gone into a realm that it would have been, it'd be less well received. Totally agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think that's what makes it, that's actually how it got so much attention mm. um, because it's gone around the world and between having the data, having the videos and keeping it confined to just trying to understand what the patients were telling us was really important to us. I'm actually really curious because one of the things, there's been a lot of celebrity deaths over the last year. And I'm, I had a person come on the podcast who shared a dream of Prince and it gave her great comfort. And I'm curious how, if anyone that is dying has any of these celebrity deceased kind of imagery 
or or hallucinations or visions. No, that's really interesting. No, I, I can't say as I <laughs> I have had one. That's really interesting, though. <laughs> Most of them are firmly rooted in their actual personal history. Okay. So people who they know and loved and lost, mm-hmm. pets, people, actual experiences. And are they? Is it like a group? Like, do they find? Do you find it's more just single individuals or pets, or is it like a group of people or pets? No, it 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 tends to be this kind of editing process where the people that you see are the there's almost this form of final justice and the people who loved you best and nurtured you, mm-hmm. uh, particularly early on. They're the ones who predominate. Sometimes there are others in them, uh, but there's so little said. There's just a feeling or, or an intuition people get from the presence of seeing um, that loved one again. We certainly, we have wonderful videos of people who see uh, all sorts of people who they know who have died come come by them. Uh, but generally, it tends to be more personalized uh, in number. And now that you're doing all this research, you got all this press, I'm guessing people who come into Buffalo Hospice and you start serving them and asking them questions has anyone ever like said anything about not having these and being distraught about that yeah actually it's really interesting um yeah people have you know it's the whether the openness to this depends often whether they've witnessed it so there's an absence of conversation around this in a clinical framework so doctors aren't typically coming to people and say hey you may have these experiences but Patients themselves, particularly if they're older, um, will have likely witnessed this at some point in their life. You know, they saw a parent die and they referenced their parent, that sort of thing. So there's there's an un- there, 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 there's a learned understanding that, that these are real occurrences. And I certainly have seen people, there's one lady in particular who was just very enlightened and said, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing this person, that person, and would wake up disappointed. That is a rarity. And the thing that we don't know about those people is that we don't know whether they're actually eventually have those experiences. And it's just very difficult for them to communicate at that point because we have a number of people. uh, And one of them actually is is featured in the documentary who she signals by nodding her head that she saw the mother that she lost when she was eight. Um, So maybe where you're able to catch them. One of the whole problems with this research is the vantage point. So when we follow people in our studies, what we've done is we've followed them every day until death, starting several weeks and sometimes months before death. So if you just do a flyby on a Tuesday, the answer may be no. Mm -hmm. But if you ask people on on a daily basis, the vast majority are able to relay these experiences. So part of it is a sampling error. Um, the other thing is that, you know, there's a tendency for people to think that these folks are compu- confused, they're deoxygenated and medicated and, and everything like that. And that's probably true in the minutes before death. But we're talking about people often who are driving, you know, they're functional. And again, that's what comes out in the videos is you see that they look like you and I. And so I think it's a good time to start talking a little bit about the documentary too that's coming out. Do you know when it's going to be released? It's um it's in a film festival run now for all of this year. And so then it'll have another release uh, through some format um, in 21. Uh, then Netflix did a full episode on this, and that comes out in the fall of 2020. I just don't know. We just don't know the date yet. Oh, no way. Like, in, like what do you mean an episode? They did a six-part docuseries. Um, 
on death and dying, and one episode is featured on our work. Wow. Uh, so they came here for uh, on several occasions for, I guess, cumulatively for probably a couple of weeks, and um, and they filmed patients' families and our clinicians, and uh, we were able to create a whole episode. So I'm excited to see that. Oh, wow, that's super exciting. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's um, th- th- this whole exposure is a kind of a funny story into itself. So, do you mind if I tell it? Yeah, please do. So I I got here in '99. I was a cardiology fellow, and I really hadn't been at the bedside of of actually to truly be at the bedside, like the way nurses are at the bedside to to care for people. And so, you know, I saw these folks having these experiences, and um, it was new to me. And yet, to the nurses and chaplains, it just seemed to be part of the milieu. They all kind of accepted it. And so I looked in the literature, and I couldn't really find anything. There was a ton in the humanities, but not much in medicine. So I wrote a protocol for a study in 2000, 2001, but I thought oh, nobody would ever be interested. And then I had a fellow came around and needed a research project in 2013 or 14. She said, oh, yeah, this would, this would work. So they said, go ahead, and, but nobody will ever publish it. So we did the study, um, and I was kind of right. We published it. We never heard a thing, not an email, nothing, phone call. And then... What happened was it went from the medical literature to the non-medical literature, and it just lit up and it went around the world. So Huffington Post, Times, uh, Psychology Today, Scientific America, but it was in Korea, throughout Europe, England, China. So it, the point is, it's an interesting. It's telling the 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 chiasm between what the healthcare community sees as significant or of value or meaning. And yet what the people who we're caring for see as significant value or having meaning. And that gap is 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 problematic. You know, the, the, this, the, the whole spiritual or subjective side of the dying experience, it, it just it's so much more than a medical treaty. It's it's the closing of a life. And um, the richness in that is 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 seen when you see these kind of this kind of work, and that's clearly what people are responding to. So it's just been a very, you know, almost surreal experience for me. Um, the difference between how both sides of the fence have responded. I really thought never no one would ever give a damn, and uh, it just depended on which end of the stick you were holding. I guess that's true. Who you're looking for like who you thought would give a damn or who do you think that group was and it, and it seemed to be the opposite of what you normally would go after which is the praise or the prestige from the academic community and it's actually yeah and I, you know important. i was really just more looking for it to influence the care and um but uh yeah so from from where i sit it's been pretty weird have you got used to doing all these interviews and being filmed? I think being filmed would be like the weirdest thing because you're in front of a camera. You can't, you know, like what you look like is there. If your face goes red, if you start sweating, like it's all there right? and they're recording it all. Did you find the that hard... intimidating or anything? No. You know what the hardest part is, is that the um, the clinical interaction is an authentic one. and um, sometimes it has to be recreated for film. So you go see a patient and you have a, you know, you 
just a run-of-the-mill rounding and they're relaying these experiences and then to have to go back and do it again with a camera it's it's recreating something that was that just had its own original truth and you know trying to make that sound authentic is or feel authentic is is and not scripted is difficult mm-hmm. um because how those conversation flows uh um just has to be very natural so i it's the, there's an unnatural to it that, to it a naturalness to it that doesn't apply well clinically the only thing you sense. can do yeah definitely makes sense especially if to recreate the environment I guess the only thing to do would be maybe put a GoPro camera on you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, thanks. Yeah. The other issues, you know, there's so much, so many hoops to jump through ethically right. with permissions and sort of thing. But it's actually an interesting sub story, which is that not a single person um, that we approached for the book said no. Wow. And uh, all the families and patients, everybody wanted to contribute even to their last days which is says a lot about humanity and no one changed their names. Oh, wow. And they were revealing pretty hard truths about their life, uh, the real stuff. And, um, yeah, it was, it was remarkable. That's so beautiful to hear. Cause there's so often we want to hide, but with these experiences and, and how it changed them and how they found meaning in life or in death, right. they, they want to share yeah. it with the world. And, you know, I found the same thing when I was doing the research, we always have a comment section at the end of any study and people were thanking us for doing the research. And you're like, what? Like, is this, is this real? Like, <laughs> yeah, no, they just wanted their, they wanted their voices heard. That's it. And, and they want the, the turns out mattering, um, being heard, uh, stays with us right to the mm. end. You're right. And, and you think all, for them to be so open and so excited to share this information, it I think speaks truth that they don't think that this was possible or like they had hesitations with other people. So for you guys to provide a space to validate their experiences and to give them a, a voice, I think that's yeah. probably the most important thing that's helped people throughout the, all of this. Right. I, I'm actually across the hall. I have an 11 year old boy who's dying and, um, uh, his story and um, his mom's as a caretaker, um, they very much still want to participate in stuff. It's 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 remarkable. And actually, his one of his concerns is he wants to be able to give away his Legos, and he wants to finish his homework. So yeah, it's uh it's hard to judge what pe- what matters to people at the end, but um, good things usually. Yeah, for them finding these moments and being able to facilitate that with the dialogue. I think I think ultimately it's about um, connectivity. Mm. You know that they um, that they're able to connect. You know, because dying can be isolating, and uh, if you if you can connect to others, that's humanizing. I think that's what they all want. Yeah, we I think we we all want that, even if we're not dying. Right. I feel yeah. feel loved. Yeah heard yep yep and so i'm i'm curious when it comes to because all your sample has been in a hospice setting have you ever thought about if these experiences are occurring in like non-hospice settings so like maybe you know in the hospital versus home versus maybe even on the street from the homeless who are dying if they're all having these experiences 
Yeah, you know, it, it's it's a good question because people who are coming into hospice are death accepting, and so there's an inherent bias in the work. We, we, we're doing some collaborations with folks in California who are going to look at a hospital-based population. You get into a bit of a problem because you're, most people are in the hospital for a reason. And they, they, so there's an acute episode. They're usually not stable, and there's often a lot of medication induced, uh, introduced. So it's, it's a little trickier. It's, a, it's, it's not as clean. But yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Yeah, I would think they'd probably be very similar. I guess it, you need to know what the predictors are for these types of dreams or visions, like for the yeah. positive versus comforting. Have you thought about looking into predictors? No, we, we, we haven't. We've certainly done, um, you know, we, we tried some of that. We're going to have a study that comes out that looks at some of those quali qualitative aspects to see what there is. We don't have, we don't have that out yet, though. That was one of the things I, I looked at for the PhD, and I'm wondering if, like, some of that stuff would be similar. You'd think it'd be similar because it's just the end of life rather than after someone died. Yeah, I, I would think so. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, I wish you all the best because that can help people also even understand if like you have to be open to the experience, like to have these or open to the dying process, right? Like there's different things or your attachment style to the deceased. Yeah, it'd be very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. And <laughs> another question I had was you all, when I hear you guys talk about dreams and visions of the dying, they're always together. Why is that? Why haven't you separated the two? Well, that's a great question because we can't. Um, and, and, and both terms are erroneous. So we say dreams, uh, but the truth is that the most common thing we hear from people is that, no, you don't understand. These are different. Uh, I don't normally recall my dreams. Um, this was this was vivid or virtual. We measure realism on a scale of one to ten. It's ten um, more often than not. So people, if we were to respect what they're telling us, they're telling us these are different than dreams. These actually were occurrences. The visions is really confusing because it's not like you walk in a room and people are pointing all over the room. It certainly does happen, but it's pretty rare. What happens in, in people get ill, the one commonality is change in sleep architecture and level of alertness. So you're coming in and out of sleep states. And it's when we ask them whether it occurs in sleep or awake, the, a high percentage in the 40s are saying awake or both. So if you're not asleep, then it's not a dream. What we actually think is happening is that it's probably lucid dreaming. So it, it, it's a phasic part of sleep where you're aware of the dream state. So it feels like you're, you're very much experiencing it in front of you. So yeah, we're just, it's, it's, the only, it's the only nomenclature we have to describe it, but it's also wholly inaccurate. Because, well, people say, yeah, I have never recalled dreams in 30 years, and boy, now everything's coming to me, um, mm. you know, and people get, we've every so often get somebody who's really frustrated. Don't call it a dream. So, That's interesting. Cause yeah, dream is yeah. just a term that you have some kind of sight sound while you're asleep. Yeah. You usually have <laughs> distance to it. <laughs> um, need, right? um, any kind of imagery while you're asleep. And, but yeah, you can tell what they're saying. They're saying this is totally different than anything you've ever experienced before. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the the one common denominator. Absolutely, that's interesting. Yeah. And I wonder too, because you said the lucid dream, but it could also be 
even when you're the transition from sleep to wake or wake to sleep, they have like the hypnagogic hallucinations or hypnopompic. Yeah, exactly. Something like that too, where it's like, that, well, the, and that's kind, that's kind of what happens when you fragment sleep architecture, right? Is you're kind of in and out. So there's your the architecture gets blurred. I think that's exactly what's a lot's happening. Yep, that's interesting. That's really cool. Yeah, because uh, for one of our the biggest predictor for uh, like these grief dreams are is dream recall, and that's can be affected by a lot of different things. But it's those people who remember more of their dreams or remembering more of these types of dreams and so i wonder if it's the same thing for them if if like those who are just remembering their dreams more often are having more of these types of experiences that's cool but there's so many different things that you get to look into moving forward uh, when it comes to your research you know the thing about it is it's hard to compare in health states to states when biologically when you're dying Mm. so sleep and sleep at that point of illness doesn't resemble what we've known in health so it's hard to make the analogies. Have you ever thought about asking them if they've ever had an experience prior? So like, we did. Yeah, we've okay. asked that a lot, actually. Yeah. No, I it, it, I think people go out of their way to tell you, no, this is different. Hmm. They'll often say they've had grief dreams throughout right. their life. So that, they're, that, 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 that aspect of it is unusual. Oh, that's beautiful. So it's almost as if people, after the the loss itself, they have these dreams for comfort and continuing bond. Mm-hmm. And then it just facilitates and it comes back again at the end to also yeah. provide that comfort. Wow, that's beautiful. That's, <laughs> so wild. That's amazing. <laughs> it really is fascinating. And so, and this is a way off topic, but I know you uh you own horses, right? Mm-hmm. You have a horse farm. You, yeah, you own, yeah. Okay. So have you ever thought in your spare time when you're not writing books <laughs> being filmed, if horses also have these end of life dreams and visions while they're dying? Oh my God. <laughs> I have no idea. I've seen animal grieve. I've seen animals grieve horses, particularly in some pretty unusual ways. Um, so yeah, I don't know what they do. I, it's, it's a good question. I don't know how you'd access it, but I, I've certainly, <laughs> I think it's interesting. There's general uh, more and more awareness, though, and you're seeing the literature with elephants and everything that mm-hmm. um, there is animals have mourning. Yeah, and they dream. So it's like they're doing both. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you'd wonder, you'd think, if it's the same across different species. Yeah. I had a horse one time that was raised by a pony. He was a hot horse from a racetrack, and uh, and a pony was brought, older pony was brought into his life because he often help they can help sue the horse out and um so they live 15 years together and the pony dies and the horse probably lost 75 100 pounds uh after the loss Hmm. Uh there's no no doubt they they there's that level which is really doesn't isn't shocking i don't think but it is some people no but Mm. you need the experience to see it right and i think you being familiar with it you're like yeah that makes sense but for most people they just don't have the opportunity to see that within the animals um no and old people old horse people would tell you it's one of the problems with how horses are handled now uh, people will um I was talking to ladies from europe who's actually on the german olympic team at one point and she said you know the difference now is that people trade horses and buy horses and flip horses and so in the day we used to just have your horse and she's convinced that 
all the moving from barn to and people is is creating a, a, a destabilizing traumatic kind of event for the animal whereas before they really maintained bonds wow well it's very similar to humans mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. yeah it kind of stands to reason we don't do that to dogs we try not to right Oh, it's so true. It's interesting. Interesting questions. And so uh, as you move forward, when you started, were you the one that started the research center at Hospice yes. Buffalo? Oh, yeah. no way. That was you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's so cool. So I, I, I had always done, I had a PhD and did bench research. And, um, and uh, so I was always interested in research. It's kind of funny because I always, you know, for a long time when I pointed, I how did I, did I make that worthwhile? And I'm convinced I wouldn't be doing this today if I hadn't learned to ask questions and try to find answers. So what I did was I just I took it to a whole different area, and gradually I stopped doing drug studies or met pure medical studies and looked at um, the experience of illness, and that's how this came about. Mm-hmm. Oh. Wow. I'm glad you had that. <laughs> Where would we yeah, be without you? Yeah, it's kind you? of funny, right, how it turns out because, you know, end-of-life research is pretty limited, um, which is really unfortunate. Because of everything you've done, have you seen an increase in anyone else trying to do this type of research also? I have, yeah, I think so. Um, it's interesting. It's, it's got such great reception that I think more people are starting to contribute, and we're finding people who want to collaborate, which is wonderful. One of the worries is that this becomes overly identified with us. And it really isn't about us, I think. So I think we need more people in and um, in other cultures. I know the Japanese released a study last year, I believe it was, and um, others are working on it, which is great. Wow, that's amazing. Back to your original point, I think there are cultural differences that we just can't capture. Right, in the U.S. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that's uh, it's pretty cool to see that, to be around, to be able to see how your work is influencing the work of others and the press itself that you're getting, people start to notice. And then maybe hopefully you can get funding because that's a big thing, right? With people doing research is like, can they get funding in this area? And so now it's more well accepted, but probably higher likelihood of getting funding. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, NIH actually reached out because they're looking at, um, um, you know, uh, in Alzheimer's, how they some times towards the end improve cognitively although they'll remember family members they'll cite family members names they haven't so it's, it's it's called a lucidity phase and so yeah people are starting to look at this dude that's exciting so how do you celebrate all this new excitement in your life have you, has it sunk in yet no it's all too weird <laughs> it's it's just a it's it really is it's it's hard to kind of get your mind around and I, and I'm and I've you know I've never seen Facebook I've never seen a tweet so the fact that this is all digitally based now I'm just out of it so I, I, I'm learning quick. <laughs> That's funny. Well, hopefully you can uh, celebrate. That's one of the things I had to learn after I was finished. Is like how do I even celebrate? It's been such a long road and long process. Yeah, how so long how did it take you? Uh, before and a half years for the PhD, but it was two and a half for my MA, and then there was five years for my BA. That's right. But it's, it's just like time. you're in school the whole time, and like mm. it's hard to celebrate wins when you haven't reached the end. And then by the time I reached the end, it was like I just couldn't get there. It was so weird. It's like mm. your mind goes to the next thing rather than trying to like sit with what just occurred and what you've done. Yeah. The, the the thing that's weird is that yeah, it's been so interesting. I thought writing the book was the hard part, 
then the editing was almost as hard as the book. And then keeping up with the um, publicity side of it is actually as hard as the editing, which is hard as the book. So it's been bought by nine countries now, and, and so there's lots of communications um, around the world and through the different media platforms. It's, it, it keeps you busy. Wow. It's not just about writing the book. I guess that was the lesson I learned. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> you thought you were going to become clean after you're done. You go back. Yeah, to your, your yeah, bedroom, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's got a whole other life. That's funny. But, That's wild. So how do you how do you do it all? How is that possible? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if I do it well. But one of the things I'm really working on is is it's really really important. And I'll send this to you. Um, um, it helps enormously if you can see the patients and family videos. So I, I really believe the the book needs to be uh, aligned with that. So I, I try to distribute those as much as possible. Hmm. You'll, it, you'll get a kick on some are just uh, amazing. You know, it's just stuff that's hard to capture into words. Oh, that's nice. Is there a is there like a link in the book to a page where you can see videos? No? no, there, 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 there is on. There will be more online, but we're just developing it now. But I've got some I can send you. Oh, that'd be amazing! Yeah. 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 All right. So the last time you came on the podcast, we asked you if you ever had a dream of your father, and you said no. And now it's been a year and a half. Have you ever had a dream of your father? No. Oh. <laughs> I still I'm nothing. Those, eh? No, I'm poor. One of those poor, unfortunate people who I can't tell you. Uh, the last time I recalled a dream, I, I wish I, I wish I could. I have a theory that my sleep has been so utterly brutalized with being on call since I was like 24 years old that um, I don't sleep normally. I don't have normal sleep patterns, um, so I, I wake up a lot. And so I don't know if I'm, I'm not falling in good enough deep sleep or whatever recoverable sleep, um, but I certainly don't. I never remember. That's interesting. Yeah, around ten percent of the population doesn't remember their dreams, but they are dreaming. Oh, that, I thought it was. It's that. It's that. I thought it'd be much higher than that. No, you're in the minority. Jeez, you're minority. making me feel worse. <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't know that. Huh? Yeah, but they are trying to develop a system to be able to see what dreams people are actually dreaming. So I can see they're in kidding. like ten years. Yeah, there'll be something to be able to see, which would be great for both of us to actually understand what's what are people remembering versus what dreams are having. Huh. But, uh, oh, yeah. no, no, no idea. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. Technology is doing a lot for us. So yeah. the so my other question, have you ever asked, because I know you have some siblings, have you ever asked them if they ever dreamt of your father? No, I haven't. Mm. No. It'd be interesting no. to sort of hear that to see what they if they also have that or if they've had some positive ones. Right. Maybe an, yeah. yeah, interesting conversation. Yeah, I know. I never have. It's a good question, though. Well, this is what we do on the podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do a good job of it. <laughs> okay, that's beautiful. So, is there anything else that you want to share about the book no. or or life? Just, um, no, it's called um, "Death Is But a Dream." Um, it was just star rated by Publishers Weekly, which is for the top kind of five percent for outstanding quality. Um, it's uh, it's on the 11th. You can buy it. It's pre available on pre-order right now on Amazon, etc. So I, I hope you you enjoy it if you buy it, and I uh, look forward to any feedback. That's, that's about it. All right, amazing. And 
the I'll put the TED talk also in your bio again. And also Great, I'm gonna I'm gonna release your old episode um that you did here, episode 73, prior to this. So people can understand your backstory a little bit more and some of the okay. information and also. I, I that, sent you some publicity on the book. So okay. Hopefully that's a help. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll add that in too. Excellent. Well, it's been such Thank a pleasure. Thank you, Joshua. I really appreciate it. And congratulations on all your success. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I, uh, hey, just, it's going where it's going. And the best thing to do is just watch it and to just do follow your heart and follow your passions. And that's what I've learned the most of. Is yeah, well, it's you worked can't... for you well. Oh, thanks. Congratulations. I appreciate it. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate talking to you again. And it's just great to follow up with someone who's doing such um, amazing research and has such a great heart in the game. So I continue all the success. Hopefully you can get some sleep <laughs> when it's all said and done. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I can't wait to sort of see that the Netflix documentary coming out soon too. Cause when that comes out, I'll, uh, we'll definitely do another uh, shout Sounds out. Sounds great. You. Wonderful. All right. Thank you. So, no problem. But to wrap up with our stuff, if you want to know more about Grief Dreams, go to griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. We did add a donation button, so you can donate there. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group, and you can also share your dreams and hear others on there. If you have Twitter or Instagram, you go at Grief Dreams. And we also have another podcast called Grief Cafe. If you haven't heard, go check that out. It's on all the platforms also. Okay, with our ending, with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.